You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone. This is our second in our series on Jewish spirituality. And we're continuing talking about the soul and the afterlife. So the problem with the afterlife and with trying to understand what happens after we leave this world is some people will say, well, no one's ever come back to talk about it. And while that is true, it's not completely true. Uh, it is something abstract. It is something that is not perceived through the senses. Last week we talked about the soul and the idea of a spiritual essence within us created by the divine. And the Kabbalists say that the soul has its own senses in a sense. Sorry about that. Uh, that wasn't a pun. It has its own senses, its own ability to perceive in the world. And we'll talk more about that as well. So the question is, how can we know? How can we know about the afterlife? How can we know about the soul? And in the 1970s, there was a doctor. His name was Dr. Moody. And he was a regular mainstream doctor, not even necessarily a believer in religion. And he dealt with a lot of patients who had what are called near-death experiences. They died. Clinically, they were dead. Their heart stopped beating. And they were resuscitated. And what he started to see is that people would tell him anecdotally after they came out, they would say, oh, you know, I, well, the most striking was, I saw myself from above. And this he heard over and over. Then he started to hear other Descriptions of going through a tunnel, approaching a light, feeling the warmth of the light, and he started to document it. And he became more curious, so he put up a sign in the hospital saying, anyone who was dead and resuscitated, uh, come tonight you know, to this room and you know, we can share. And he expected two or three people, the room was full. And so... Uh, he started gathering these stories, eventually came out with the book. The book uh, sold millions of, of copies. And it really kind of brought to the mainstream the idea that one can have a perception and one can even, uh, I wouldn't say prove there is an afterlife, but have a strong understanding of it and a basis on which to believe it. And the basis was that what happened was uh, they started doing kind of studies so they would plant an object, for instance, in a uh, hanging light. They would put a pen on top of it. People would wake up out of their coma and say, oh, you know, they'd say, well, you know, you say you saw yourself from above. What was uh, on top of the light? Or people would describe how they were floating outside the building. And on the fourth floor on the outside ledge, there is a sneaker sitting there. And they'd go look and the sneaker was there. And one of the most uncanny one was... Uh, that uh, someone came out of their coma and said, three rooms down, there's a woman writing a letter to her sister. And the nurse went over, and sure enough, at that moment, she was writing a letter to her sister. And a few moments before, the patient was in a coma and had been in a coma for days. Uh, sometimes they would tell verbatim what the doctors were saying while they were out in their coma. So this is very striking, and um, 
And this started to form the basis for his, uh, his strength and belief. Now, um, there is basis for criticism. Uh, the in second interesting story was by Dr. Eben Alexander. Very similar story. He was even better because he was a neurologist. Yale or one of the big universities, very much a rationalist. Um, didn't believe in religion particularly. And he went into a coma for a week. And over that week, he started to experience, uh, when he came out of it, it seemed like he was out just for a few hours. And they told him that he was out for so long. And he, in his book called Proof of Heaven, does discuss, you know, could this be hormones generated by the near death, by the lack of oxygen, hallucinations, hormonal, um, and he does explore all of that. But for him too, the experience was so vivid, it was more than a dream. And he describes going through the tunnel, arriving at a place of, great, of light, being drawn to the light. And he says something else interesting. So uh, he said that on his journey, there was this woman who brought him, who led him along his journey. Now, part of Jewish belief in the Kabbalah, it says that when a person leaves this world, sure enough, that there is a, in a sense, an angel, which could be the soul of a person that accompanies them to the other side. And uh, he had this guide, this young woman, who he didn't recognize, and was there with him the whole time, kind of helping him through the steps. And he uh, was very puzzled by it. So he comes out of his coma after a week, and he, as many people who have near-death experiences, his life changes. He feels an urgency to live life to the fullest. Any of his kind of regrets of what he didn't do, he tried to act upon, one of which was that he had been adopted and he'd never reached out to his adoptive family. Now, part of what changed was that the laws in New York State, I believe, have changed. But he reached out and he found them and he met with them. And it was very emotional and very life-changing. And after the second meeting, they gave him an envelope. And they said, here, we want you to open this when you get home. He opens up the envelope, manila folder, takes out a letter, and it says, we never told you this, but you actually had a, um, had a, a younger sister, and she passed away when, uh, that you didn't know about, who'd been adopted by another family, and she passed away in her early 20s. And he takes out the picture, and he looks at it and he sees that um, the picture that is in the envelope is none other than the guide who had been accompanying him along the way. So somehow the connection of his biological sister was the one who came to accompany him, unbeknownst to him that she was his sister, which later corroborated. So that also uh, was a very powerful corroboration of, for him, of the story. Now, you could say, well, he was lying or whatever, okay. But for him, it was to the point where, um, where his life changed drastically and he dedicated his life to speaking about these areas and exploring them more, etc. 
So what does Jewish tradition have to say about all of this? And what's fascinating about uh, the Torah and the Kabbalah, much of it is in the, in the Talmud. Um, the Torah, interestingly, speaks very little about the world to come, which is what we call the afterlife. Now, if, as we said last week, though, there is a divine soul, and the divine soul is created, then, and it comes from the, within the divine realm, and God is eternal, then one could understand that the divine soul could also be eternal, could also live on after our physical body dies. And, but what's unique about the Torah approach is that we view life and death as a radical bifurcation. There's life until whatever that moment is, and there's a big debate, is it when the heartbeat stops? Is it when the brain activity starts? If your brain activity, if your brain is dead, lack, lack, due to lack of oxygen, the cells are gone, uh, but your lower brain cortex is still there, or lower brain stem is still there, uh, and your heart is beeping, is that beating, is that life, is that not? Um, there are debates about this, but whatever the case is, uh, after a while, the person, all of their functions cease and their body is no more. That we know. And then people view, if you believe in an afterlife, that's when it comes. So the Jewish view is very different because the death is a, I said the word, and uh, at the same time, people are, I think, fascinated by the afterlife. And at the same time, if we think about the implications of it, there is an anxiety over death. There is a fear of death. And the psychologists speak about this much. Uh, this is a topic which particularly has always interested me. I remember in my early teens asking in Hebrew school, you know, what does Judaism believe? Do we live after, uh, after we leave this world? And I thought that would be a place to ask it. Unfortunately, the answer I got was, we don't really know about those things, so we don't ask, and it just kind of got pushed to the side. And I did stop asking, unfortunately, until my early 20s. So, for, in Judaism, it's a gradual process. It's a journey of the soul. And the Kabbalah says that 30 days before a person dies, the soul already starts to separate from the body. Now, that might seem strange, but last week I already mentioned that there are certain healthcare professionals who ask them and they'll say they can tell when a person is going to leave this world. And it's not a physiological thing. It's an aura. It's a sense. And uh, a friend of mine had a friend, close friend, and in his, I believe, late 30s, he just took off from work. He traveled to Israel to be with his uh, Torah teachers. He traveled to New York, where he uh, was from. He went and visited all of his close friends, and the friend said he had a real heart-to-heart -heart with them when he visited them. And then the, returned home, and a day later, he passed away. And it's almost as if subconsciously he knew that he was on the way out. And, um, and we're going to see that... Uh, once a person does leave this world, once again, it's not like they're gone. Because even though the body is dead, the soul leaving this world is a gradual process that goes step by step. 
And we talked about the three parts to the soul, the nefesh, the life force, the, the ruach, the spirit, and the neshama, the divine soul. So what happens is those three parts of the soul are like three links in a chain. And after the person dies, it's a gradual process for the different parts of the soul and ultimately the divine soul to separate itself completely from what's going on from this world. And what's interesting, fascinating, is that many of the Jewish laws of mourning correspond to this concept, address this idea that the soul is not completely gone right away. So, for instance, um, uh, the idea of a shomer, of someone staying with the body, and a lot of these things were not able to be done during the corona, and um, it just greatly distressed the family members. So, the custom is not to leave a body alone. Because, um, so the Talmud asks, it says, do those who've left this world know what's happening in our world? And if so, for how long? So there's a debate, like many good Talmudic texts, there's a machloket, difference of opinion. First opinion says, until the burial, the person is there. And that would explain why you'd have someone stay with the body so they're not alone. That would explain why we bring the casket into the funeral home when we're saying the eulogies. One of the rabbis says to his co- said to his colleagues, be careful what you say at my funeral because I'll be there. And, um, and that's also why we praise, we talk about their qualities, we praise the person so that they hear all the merits that they're going to have as they move on to the next stage. And um, also, it explains the reason why we bury as quickly as possible, because we want the soul to move on. We want it to go to the next stage. And uh, it's also one of the reasons why we don't cremate, and that we'll understand uh, as we develop this up. So one opinion is the person knows what's going on until the burial. The soul has not left the body. And when my mother passed away, uh, I'd never seen a dead body and she was ill for a while. So I really had time to prepare myself. And um, this is also very interesting at the moment when a person passes away. So there are many anecdotal uh, stories of windows shattering. Uh, Native Americans have a custom to open up the window when a person passes away. Um, there's, and many of the stories I'm going to tell you what happened was they, either I heard them or I heard them, many of them teaching these, uh, classes. And if you have stories, I invite you to reach out. There's a book called Small Miracles, uh, of, uh, from heaven. And, uh, if you're into these stories, I highly recommend it. And, um, so what happened was my mother passed away and, uh, she had been holding on for a number of days and I went home around 10 o'clock from her apartment and I went to sleep around one and five minutes later I woke up and I knew she'd passed away. How do I know? I can't tell you, but I just knew. And sure enough, I wasn't going to call the apartment. It was very late, but sure enough, a few minutes later, uh, I get the call and I go over and I thought I'd be scared and I wasn't. It was almost as if I knew this is the receptacle for the soul. This is the vessel that housed it for her life. 
and now her soul is moving on to another dimension. So as they brought her down, the, mor- the, the ambulance to bring her to the morgue, I, came, I went down to the street with her. And as, I, as she was put into the ambulance and the ambulance drove away, I felt her presence rising. And um, so what we're told is that that process happens gradually while till the burial, the body's kind of still hovering above. And the second opinion says, no, it says uh, the person is aware of what is happening to, the, to them sorry to be graphic, until the body is gone. Until the body is gone. And we'll talk about why that's significant uh, in a few minutes. So the different parts of the soul have to separate. And one of the reasons given, and as the time goes on, and this also corresponds to the morning, for the seven days, the Shiva that we observe, it says the soul is still present. One of the reasons given why we cover Mirrors is because the soul might be semi-perceptible in a mirror. More about that later. And um, and then there's the 30 days of mourning which we observe. It says the soul is still present, but come, but not totally present. And then for the 12 months, when we lose a parent, it says the soul is coming and going. Now... The question we asked is, does the soul know what is going on in this world? That's what the Talmud is asking. So this is a very almost funny story, uh, which is in the Talmud. And the, can't say the Talmud doesn't have humor. So the story goes like this. story goes, it's in the Babylonian Talmud Brachot. goes like this, that uh, it was before Rosh Hashanah. And a pauper came around the door collecting money. And this guy gave the poor man money. His wife found out how much she gave, got uh, upset, and um, kicked him out of the house. So he's nowhere to go. Where is he going to sleep? Needs a quiet place. Goes to the cemetery. And he goes to sleep in the cemetery. And during the night, he starts to hear things. And he hears the voices saying, oh, What's going to happen next year? Remember, it's before Shana when we're judged on what's going to be for the next year. What's going to happen next year? So one says to the other, oh, it's going to rain early this year. So this guy, you know, eventually goes home. um, And he tells his wife, we're going to plant late this year. Most of the people planted early. Their crops were wiped out. He had a bounty crop. His wife is happy. And as they say, Shalom al Israel. So this guy seemingly uh, had some smarts. So the next year, what does he do before Rosh Hashanah? He goes to sleep in the cemetery. And he hears them saying, oh, what's going to be this year? And the other soul says, oh, this year uh, it's going to rain late. So what does he do? He plants early. Everyone else plants late, thinking it's going to rain early. Their crops are wiped out. Once again, not only does he have a bounty crop, but the prices went up because everyone else's crop was damaged. It says the third year he went out again, and as they started to give the report for the coming year, one soul said to another, be quiet. There, 
you know, it's, uh, it's reported that they hear us from beyond. So that's the Talmud's version of it. Now, in terms of uh, anecdotal stories, um, there's a whole, I don't say industry or uh, interest in people who can channel a soul from the other world. And actually you have it in the Bible, in the Torah, in the book of Samuel. King Saul, when uh, Samuel told him he would not, his kingship would not continue, Samuel passes away, the prophet, and Saul's tormented over King David. Will he take over from him? And he goes to Samuel, to his grave, to the witch of Endor, and has her conjure up Samuel's spirit. And he says, leave me alone, and I'm not changing my mind. So how do we understand this? Maimonides says it's all a dream or she was a charlatan. It's not true. In the late Victorian era, there were many seances and they would use smoke and mirrors and create these projections of, uh, of souls and uh, voices coming from behind a curtain. We know that. So how do we understand this? Uh, so I have several anecdotes. The first one is, uh, it's giving a class Someone came, saw in the afterlife, and afterwards she comes over, Rabbi, my mother passed away six weeks ago, and I miss her. So I went to a clairvoyant. And I'm talking with the clairvoyant, and, uh, you know, she's telling me your mother wants you to know she's all right, and this and that, and it sounded like my mother, but I wasn't sure. And so then I asked her, I said, where is my mother? So she said, your mother is in Paris. Now, um, she said, then I knew it was my mother because she always would fly off to Paris to go shopping. So it made sense. And of course, the clairvoyant didn't know that. Um, and it's actually very sad because we want the soul to move on, not to be stuck wanting, desiring all the things in this world. If you've ever seen the movie, The Others, you'll understand what I'm talking about. If you haven't, see it. Hollywood is obsessed by these themes. Uh, the original one was Ghost, uh, Demi Moore, years ago. Uh, very entertaining. Uh, the Others, uh, Sixth Sense also, if you remember the punchline there. Um, so there are souls that are trapped that can't get out of this world. And that is a tragic thing. It says that the soul, and we're going to start talking about the concept of what is called generally reward and punishment or heaven and hell, which um, has all of these uh, very heavy overtones to it. Dante's Inferno. Um, does Judaism believe in heaven and hell? What Mostly we're going to address it next week, but I'll just quote you one text from the Talmud, which says that the souls of the righteous, they move on they go to the underneath the divine throne meaning a special place close to the almighty but those of the wicked are thrown from one end of the world to the other and don't find rest so god forbid if a person uh doesn't move on in the right way then the angels are playing catch with their soul and why because you see the causal relationship. This woman who is very into the material, her soul doesn't want to let go of the physical world. So she wants to stay in Paris and go shopping. So um, 
I asked my spiritual teacher, said, you know, and then the woman said, can I go back? Should I continue to do this? So I asked my teacher and he said, very interesting, he said that um, we want the soul to move on. So actually it's a very bad thing to try and conjure up souls because you are connecting to their nefesh, to the lowest part of the soul, and you're keeping it rooted in this world. And it's not till the nefesh moves up from the world and then the higher parts of the soul can move on as well. So, um, so I told her not. On the other hand, there are stories of people who go to Kabbalists and who do uh, get um, some, uh, some responses about what's going on with their relatives that they've lost. I had one student and she was an only child. Her father was a survivor. She was very close to him and he passed away. And she just couldn't get past it, couldn't get over it. And it, became, it was even more uh, upsetting to her because her father had appeared to her friend in a dream. Or so this friend felt, and we'll talk about dreams being a conduit for, to souls, connection to souls in the next world. And so I suggested to her, go to this great rabbi. And I, I, I found when he was seeing people, and now I didn't set it up because I'm the one who sent her and didn't say anything. Now she walks in, and by the way, I've sent many people and I've gone to him. This is a person who, the idea is that a Kabbalist is so rooted in their soul, so connected to their own soul, that first of all, they can connect to another person's soul and they can connect to dimensions beyond this one, sometimes across space, sometimes across time, sometimes across dimensions of this world or the next. And so... He, she walks in and he says to her, your father, Moshe ben so-and-so, wants you to know that he's all right. Now, how did he know that? I don't know. She didn't tell him her na his name. But uh, that's the story she told me. And um, so, uh, so the souls can connect and we're actually told that in, uh, at a wedding, the souls of those who've passed away of our ancestors come to the chuppah on the day of our wedding. So that's a reassuring thought. So even if it's past 12 months when they've moved on, uh, they come and they're present. Now, we said before that the degree to which a soul is connected to this world is the extent to which it will either not be able to move on but if a person is more focused on the spiritual areas, then the soul will have a greater ability to move on. And Rabbi Joseph Alba, one of the evil philosophers, picks up on this and he says, uh, when a person passes away, their soul is torn in two directions. The neshama, the divine side of their soul, wants to move on to the next world. The nefesh, the life force, which was invested in the body, wants to stay here. And so the soul is pulled in two directions, and that's a painful process. So our view of reward and punishment isn't pitchforks and lollipops. It's, in a sense, to say that the more a person cultivated their spiritual senses, exercised their spiritual muscles in this world, 
that will be the degree to which in the next world they'll have the, the tools to be able to connect to a spiritual realm. Kind of like a musician who, the more they study music, the more they practice, the more they understand the subtleties of the music, the greater appreciation they have. So too with the strings of our soul. And so, um, and so what happens if a person is too rooted in this world, if they are too invested in the material, if they did spend their lives being too focused on these things? So the good news is that after a person passes away, there is rehab for the soul, so to speak. Um, how does that work? So the soul has to learn. And one of the ways it learns to let go of the body is the process of burial. And uh, once again, sorry to be graphic, we said before that the soul knows what's going on until the body leaves, decomposes until the body is gone. And the Talmud uh, has another saying, which is this. Okay, listen carefully. It says, once again, sorry for the graphic imagery, but it says a worm is as painful to the dead as a needle to the flesh of the living. A worm is as painful to the dead as a needle to the flesh of the living. So it's kind of disturbing, but it doesn't make sense. So Thomas says, what does that mean? The, worm, the, the person after they're dead doesn't have physical pain. The body, soul is no longer, the body no longer has senses registering in the brain. So what it means is this, that the soul still has the perception of the body. And if the person was too invested in the body, seeing the body decomposing, going back to the earth, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, from dust to dust, right? From the earth you were taken and to the earth you will return. And that's why we have the custom to bury in the ground with a cas wooden casket where the person will go back to the uh, to the elements and not this idea of kind of a metal or a stone tomb where a person feels like, oh, if I don't, if the body stays around, I'll be around. We don't want that. And that's also why we don't like cremation is because it's a gradual process. The process of the body being gone, decomposing, teaches the soul to let go. And eventually the soul realizes the gig's up and it's time to move on. But it's kind of a gradual process of the soul learning this and then eventually letting go. And if it happens all at once, it's too traumatic for the soul. I know you'll ask me, what about people who, God forbid, died in the Holocaust? And that it says there's a special process for those who die al-Kiddush Hushem, who die sanctifying God's name. Uh, who died because of the fact that they were Jewish, or someone who dies sticking up for their Judaism, or fighting for the Jewish people in the Israeli army. We call those Kedoshim, and their souls have a special process. So, but otherwise, uh, it's a gradual one, and that's what's intended. And that is so that the soul learns. So we said it's rehab for the soul, the pain of, and Judaism does have a concept of hell, but it's, the hell is rehab for the soul, which is a painful process, but a process that re-educates the soul 
to allow it to move on to the next dimension. Okay, so that's the beginning of an understanding of our concept of reward and punishment. And conversely, the more a person connected to spirituality, to mitzvot, to doing good in the world, to tikkun olam, to studying Torah, to developing their spiritual inner self, prayer, meditation, taking time to be, the Shabbat, all of these things are, are developing our spiritual sense so that we'll be equipped to exist spiritually after we leave this world. And uh, there's a very famous teaching which says in the Ethics of the Fathers, and it says, uh, this world is like a corridor and the next world is like the main hall. They say, prepare yourself in the entranceway to enter the main hall. So like at a wedding, you know, you get spruced up. Before you go in, women, or habitually, some men, will look in the mirror, make sure everything is okay, everything is right, and then go in. So we liken that to spiritually. We prepare ourselves. This world is the anteroom. And the next world is the main hall. And this is a big debate. You sometimes hear the generalization, oh, Christianity is otherworldly, Judaism is about this world. And while that's true, because we believe that it's only in this world, in the anteroom, that we can prepare ourselves, that we can do mitzvot, that we can develop our spiritual side, that we can use our free will to choose to become more spiritual, to focus upon the less material things, to focus upon the more meaningful areas of life. And that's how we'll be equipped. And Maimonides even says that it's not even like, so what is the next world? So it's not like it's the future, because once our body's gone, we're no longer time bound. So in a sense, it's not the world that'll be in afterwards. It's a different dimension of reality that our soul, in a sense, is freed from the body and then can access these other dimensions. And so, in a sense, every moment of our life, if we choose to live it in a way which is connecting from within our soul and ourselves to the Almighty, if we choose to live that way, then the, 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 the next world is another dimension of everything that is going on in our lives. And in a sense, when our, we leave our body, we actualize that, those points of contact and we uh, connect to the true spiritual impact of them. And so just like we said at the beginning, that we can't really know uh, we can't perceive the soul in the afterlife, right? We don't have a vision of it, necessarily. But there are many things in life that are abstract, that are very real for us. Emotions, we don't see them, we can't touch them, we can't measure them empirically, but they're very real to us. We make life decisions based on them. And so too, the idea of the afterworld and the soul is that they're very real, and we should live with them as they're real, not to feel guilty or be afraid of the fires of hell, so to speak. Although Judaism does believe in a balance, we should have love of God and 
look to maximize our opportunities to connect spiritually and know that there'll be a time in the future when that is actualized. But we should also have some trepidation at the fact that if we don't, we're missing out on the opportunities and in a sense, we are hurting our soul. And I'll leave you with a rabbinic teaching and it says it's likened to the king who gives out to his servants white garments so they can be, so they can live this special life. And they, after a while, the king comes and says, I need the garments back. And some of the people bring back the garments and they're all stained and they're all dirty. And some people bring back the garments white and pristine and clear. And so it says that's the way we're supposed to return with our souls to the Almighty, with a clean, pure soul. And, uh, and that's our concept of, so to speak, the actualization of the world to come, reward and punishment. Next week, we'll talk about ghosts. Do we believe in them? Uh, we'll talk about more about this idea of what is the next world and what, uh, and we'll also talk about can people who have left this world send us messages? We, we asked this week, can we know, uh, can they know what's happening in this world? And then we'll talk about can they send us messages? So, um, Highly recommend an article by Rabbi R.A. Kaplan, The Soul and the Afterlife. Years ago, I came upon this article and uh, it connected me to that question I'd asked when I was 11 years old and never got an answer for. And for decades, I've been gathering material on this and uh, inspired by that article by Rabbi R.A. Kaplan. Um, I do have a full bibliography. Reach out if you'd like the bibliography of all the books on the soul and the afterlife. Um, that concludes today. Tune in next week as we continue Jewish spirituality, the soul and the afterlife. This Wednesday, we will not be doing great Jewish personalities because we are having a pre-Shavuot program, which you can find on Facebook, on my Facebook page. And um, we'll pick up uh, that series in two weeks. Have a good evening.